You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Matthew. Here's Nate. Well, Matthew chapter 18 is a wonderful chapter because it's a discipleship chapter where Jesus focuses on his men. He has made the declaration to his men privately that he is the Christ. He's spoken to them of his impending death and betrayal. And so he's turned his attention now to preparing these men who obviously would be the early church leaders. And it's interesting to think of these men because it tells us in verse 1 that at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so here's Jesus trying to give his disciples the deep lessons, trying to speak to them of his death, what real discipleship looks like to take up your cross, to deny yourself and to follow after him. And as they're traveling towards Jerusalem, the disciples come and they want to know from Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They want to have a glimpse into their position. Now, when they ask this question, they're not really asking the same kind of question that perhaps you and I would be asking from our vantage point. If we were to ask who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, we would be thinking of a, a throne room in the heavenly realm, a, a different place entirely from here on earth. But Jesus had been speaking of the kingdom of heaven, but the disciples in their minds had been trained to think about a physical, earthly, messianic kingdom. And so they were thinking that in the first coming of Christ, this kingdom would be revealed. And they want to know, Jesus, when you sit on your throne and when you rule over the the Romans and establish the prominence and preeminence of Israel once again, who is going to be the greatest in your kingdom? Which one of us will sit with you? Which one of us will be enthroned perhaps on your right or on your left? Another one of the discussions that they had uh, from time to time. And so they asked Jesus, who is the greatest? He's been trying to tell them that if they want to be great in his kingdom, they need to take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow after him. But they're not looking to do any such thing at this point. They want to know who the greatest of the disciples is. Now, Jesus gives them an interesting answer. He brings a child into their midst and tells them, you must turn and become like children and if you don't, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You'll never be born again. Some translations say converted. You'll, you'll never have this experience if you don't become like a child. If you become like a child and humble yourself, verse 4, like a child, you'll be the greatest in the kingdom. 
In other words, in one sense, I think what Jesus is saying is that the attribute that is required to be born again, the attribute required to initially enter the kingdom, is the same attribute that is required to become the greatest in the kingdom. That's what Jesus says in verse 3. You've got to be like a child to enter. You've got to humble yourself, verse 4, like a child to be the greatest. So to enter the kingdom and to be the greatest in the kingdom requires the same attribute, and it's humility. You see, when you hear the message of the gospel, there's a humility that's required. It declares over us that we are dead in trespasses and sins. It declares to mankind that he has a great need within himself. Every religion that man has created is a religion in which he can earn the favor of God. It's a religion in which his works can make him righteous. But Christianity declares just the opposite. You, in and of yourself, do not have what is required. You do not have the strength. You must become like a humble child who recognizes that all you can do is believe and receive your salvation, for you cannot, in your flesh, work for that salvation. And that same humility that gains you entrance into the kingdom, Jesus is saying, is the same thing required in order to have greatness inside of God's kingdom. You know, the wonderful thing about an innocent child is that, in one sense, there are many ways in which a child understands that they are dependent. They know that they need someone to care for them and protect them and provide for them. They understand that. And if a, if a parent began to speak to their child as if they were going to withhold any of those things from them, a child would look at them like they were crazy. What do you mean? I, I can't provide for myself. I can't earn a living. I can't go to the store and purchase food. I need you to care for me. They understand their dependence. They're not prideful in that area. They understand that they are in a position of need. They expect to be helped. And another thing about children, I think, is when it comes to humility, is that there is this belief inside of them that uh, they can do things. Uh, you know, David with Goliath kind of faith. With the help and strength of God, I will be able to defeat this giant. So often grown-ups overcomplicate the matter. Having faith like a child, however, humility like a child, just a simple belief in the Lord and what he is able to do, leads to greatness in the kingdom of God. The setting aside of personal agendas, adopting the agenda of Christ, his mission, advancing his cause, not your own. This is the humility and the mindset of a child. And so the same thing that gets you into the kingdom is the thing that causes you to be great in the kingdom, a humble faith before the Lord. Now Jesus goes on and expounds upon his lesson. Well, that child is in his midst saying in verse 5, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. 
But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And so Jesus pronounces some warnings and some woes upon his disciples and upon his audience with this child in his midst. First in verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now this is an interesting exhortation from Jesus because children were not highly regarded in that particular culture. And in, in our current culture, at least the one that I'm living in, children are highly regarded, at times even worshipped and placed as the object of extreme devotion of their parents and society in general. But in that culture, children were not highly regarded uh, in any way, shape, or form. And so, in one sense, Jesus could be saying here, listen, here's a person who is not highly regarded in your society. Here's a person who is commonly neglected. You need to receive the kinds of people who are neglected and not highly regarded in your culture. Later in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus would announce that a day will come when Jesus says, thank you for clothing me, thank you for feeding me, thank you for when I was thirsty, giving me something to drink. And some will say, when did we ever clothe you, feed you, or give you something to drink? And Jesus will say, well, when you did it to the least of these, you did it for me. So in one sense, Jesus is here in verse 5, perhaps, making an exhortation towards receiving people who are lowly regarded in a particular culture. But of course, in another sense, he's giving a direct exhortation concerning the way that we treat children. He goes on in verse 6 to say, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depth of the sea. Now, a millstone, just so that you understand the gravity of the statement Jesus is making, was not a lightweight little rock. This was one that potentially even a beast of burden, like a donkey, would be used to power and turn and grind whatever needed grinding, the wheat or whatever it might be. And so Jesus is making a strong statement here saying, listen, it would be better for you to basically die of drowning in the ocean than it would be for you to take one of these little ones who believe in me and cause one of them to sin. This is a stern warning to make sure that we as individuals do not stumble children. And I think many people, many parents will have much to answer for on the day of judgment regarding what they allowed their children to become exposed to in stumbling their children. I came across a study recently, a secular study that had been done that linked higher pregnancy rates uh, amongst young people 
with those who watched TV with high sexual dialogue or content. And across the study, grades didn't change the pregnancy rates, family structure didn't change the pregnancy rates, parents' education level didn't change the results. The thing that had a wide variation to it were children who had watched television with high sexual dialogue and content. And that's just one example to say, listen, we must be careful about what we expose little ones to. You don't want to stumble them and what Jesus says, cause them to sin. Not even necessarily just to sin against them, Jesus is saying, although that would be wrong, but to cause them to sin. And so much of the entertainment industry and so much of music in our culture today has a strong message towards uh, children. I mean, obviously, the evolutionary idea declares to children constantly, you're just an accident. And so if they are just an accident, then why live with any purpose, with any morals, with any rules, with any integrity? And so much of the entertainment industry and music is designed to say, listen, you're an object. And living for the lust of the flesh is fun and desirable. And so Jesus gives a stern warning about that. And I think a day of judgment is coming for those who cause Little ones cause children to sin. Now in verse 8, Jesus goes on and says, If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. I think people who love to say silly things like, well, I don't like the teaching of Paul, but I do like the teaching of Jesus, have probably never read Matthew 18, amongst other places. I don't think they would enjoy this particular teaching of Jesus. He is giving stern warnings in this particular section. And he tells his disciples, listen, if your hand or your foot or your eye causes you to sin, it's better to cut them off or to pluck them out and enter into life maimed than to enter into the hell of fire with a whole and complete body. Now, what we have here is Jesus' attitude concerning personal sin and the danger attached to it. Now, obviously, Jesus in one sense, isn't telling us that we should actually personally harm or maim ourselves as a result of sin. There's some hyperbole that's involved here. I think that's obvious, and that's been the obvious response to this text from the Christian church for generations. But beyond that, you could take it in a literal sense because Jesus is posing the possibility, if your hand, or if your foot, or if your eye cause you to sin. And what we know of ourselves biblically is that really our hand or our foot or our eye, these are not the things that cause us to sin. We use them to sin, but they do not bring us or cause us to actually sin. The problem is, according to Christ, internal. It's within the heart. It's within the heart. And so 
Jesus, in one sense, is helping us understand, well, we need to recklessly and aggressively pursue Jesus and fellowship with him so that he can transform our hearts. But secondly, the first application remains. And that is that we're to be a people, according to Christ, who take sin very seriously and deal swiftly, sharply, and radically at times with it. You know, we need to understand that sin is dangerous. It is dangerous. Genesis chapter 3, the first sin Adam and Eve committed, it seemed like such a harmless thing to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It seemed like such a harmless thing for Adam to become subservient to his wife and follow her leadership. But these were things that led to the fall of mankind, to, the, to death inside of the human race. You must treat sin radically. Don't fiddle with it. Don't keep it a secret. Deal swiftly, sharply, radically. One great way to, to deal swiftly and sharply with it is to expose it, to bring it into the light. It loses so much of its power when you bring it into the light. But pursue fellowship with Christ because only he can truly change and transform the human heart. Continuing here with the little child in his midst, Jesus then went on to say in verse 10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And even though uh, some versions don't have verse 11, some do. And it says, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. So Jesus here is trying to open up the disciples' hearts and give them hearts of compassion. He says, listen, don't despise one of these little ones. And the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. It's important for a Christian, and it was especially important for these disciples to think about the next generation. And to help them, to love them, to care for them, to desire to reach them and speak to them, encourage them and help them in their faith, to introduce them to Christ, to make disciples of them. Now it's interesting here because here's Jesus speaking of his mission. You know, don't despise these little ones. The Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. But he says a very interesting thing in verse 10 when he says, concerning little children, he says, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, there are these angels who are looking to the face of God and respecting and reverencing the face of God, obedient to the directives of God. And so what Jesus says here is, don't despise these little ones because these angels, well, who are in relationship with God in that way, he says, I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So this is where some get the idea of a guardian angel over specific children. And I don't have much more to say about it. We'll discover when we get into eternity how the angelic realm specifically worked and whether particular angels were assigned to particular people. If that's the case, I know that I put my angel to plenty of work. So we will see. 
Now in verse 12, he says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So Jesus here uses this analogy to expand upon the idea that the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost, that Jesus is on a mission to reach people. And he gives this little parable about a man with a hundred sheep. He loses one of his sheep and he searches everywhere for that 100th sheep. And when he finds it, he rejoices greatly over finding the lost sheep. And he's, of course, rejoicing in a way that he was not rejoicing over the 99. This just shows the heart of God in reaching a sinner. You know, when a person receives Christ, there is such great rejoicing and celebration in heaven. And so Jesus lets them know, listen, I am a pursuing God. I'm a pursuing Lord. And if you guys are going to be my disciples and serve in my kingdom, you had better grab this heart as quickly as you possibly can. Now concerning confrontation with one another and sin against one another, Jesus said in verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now I've found that many times Christians are very dysfunctional when it comes to resolving conflict. We have the passive-aggressive style where we like to write about it online and without naming names, just saying, gosh, I just hate it when people do this or they do that. Jesus says this is what you're to do. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Not go and tell others his fault, but go and tell him between you and him alone, Jesus says. This is not for you to broadcast. You've got to keep it in-house. You're not to tell others. You're to tell him and you're to tell him alone. If he listens to you, verse 15, you have gained your brother. It's just a fact of life that there will be conflict between believers. But, verse 16, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So, now this is a legitimate wrong. This is a legitimate sin. This isn't just a, a feeling or something that I think might have happened. It's an actual crime of sin that's been committed. And so here he says, if they reject you one-on-one, -on -one, then take two or three witnesses with you. And uh, this is a very Old Testament kind of principle, the eyewitness of two or three being involved. And sometimes this has great effectiveness in working out conflicts. You bring a couple people with you, and it just helps clear the air. You get a different set of ears and eyes upon it. He says, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church or the gathering. Tell it to the group. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed 
in heaven. Now this section would have made a lot more sense in the new church era after Jesus rose from the dead and after, of course, the day of Pentecost. And so Jesus begins to speak here of a third wave there. You bring it to the church. And if they refuse the church leadership and don't want to receive even from them concerning this wrong that they've committed or are committing, then you let them go and you let them be to you like a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus says, listen, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. If you loose it on earth, it'll be loosed in heaven. In other words, God is with you in that counsel, in that determination, in that decision that has been made. He's with you. And of course, this has to happen from time to time. In 1 Corinthians, of course, there was a man who was in an unlawful sexual relationship with his father's wife, so likely his stepmother. He persisted in it, and Paul told the church in Corinth, you need to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. You need to, as a church, deal with this problem. So first one-on-one, -on -one, then with a couple of witnesses, and then finally, I think, to the church leadership for that final step. Now, verse 21, Peter came up and said to him, speaking of conflict between believers, he said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. So let's say, Lord, that I go to this man and confront him and he receives what I say and I'm supposed to forgive him. So how many times? Seven times? Now, in Peter's world, that was a lot of times. The rabbis had taught that perhaps three times would be appropriate for forgiveness. So Peter extends grace quite a bit and says seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. So Jesus here is giving an extreme. He's using hyperbole. He's not saying, Peter, you should count to 490 and make sure that you don't forgive that 491st time. No, he's saying, listen, you're too be a very forgiving person. In Luke 17, Jesus said seven times a day. So we're to be a releasing, forgiving people. Not foolish, but not bitter. Just allowing ourselves to forgive. Therefore, Jesus said, verse 23, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Now listen to this parable that Jesus told. When the king began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, it's a lot of money in that day and age, literally comparable to millions of dollars in our day and age. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything, even though the re reality of a debt this high is that this servant never would have been able to pay him back. So verse 27 and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, far less money, still significant, but far less amount. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will Pay you. He said the same words that this man who had been forgiven much had also said to his master. He refused, however, 
verse 30, and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. In other words, what Jesus is declaring here is that our forgiveness is proportional. We've been forgiven much by God, so we are able to extend much smaller versions of forgiveness to the people around us. So also, verse 35, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. I think that what Jesus is saying here is that the practical experiential forgiveness of God is withheld from us if we refuse to forgive others. It hurts our hearts not to forgive. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.